0: This is your eternal word, and it was your idea not to leave for us uh, a painting or even a song. Um, those things are powerful, and you use those. Um, you, you've left us an image in your creation, which is a tiny glimpse of who you are. But Father, you've, you've spoken most clearly in the way that we can access it today through this, the word that you had men write down and which you've left to us We ask, Father, help us to um, fearlessly embrace your word. Encourage us today, Father, by the things we'll talk about in knowing that your word is true, that it is a rock, that it has stood the test of time and deep scrutiny. Father, um, glorify yourself and uh, just help us sink our roots deeper and be firmer in you um, by you ministering to us now. We ask for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'll start off, uh, I have just a little riddle for you this morning. What if a tree falls in the forest and there is no one there to hear it? Does it make a sound? Okay, you guys have heard this one before, huh? Last week, we talked about Revelation. How God, because we could not attain to understand who He was. We couldn't come about knowing Him who is eternal and unchanging and perfect, we could not know Him unless He revealed Himself to us. So He did that in mercy. He chose to speak and reveal Himself. We talked about inspiration, which is that process whereby we receive what He has given. Specifically, with regard to the Word of God, we, we use the word inspiration in a technical sense. It's not just in the sense that we use inspiration everywhere else where, oh, that person was very inspired when they wrote that song or they were inspired when they they did that poem or that painting or whatever. Those are natural and and excellent uses of the word and God may be infusing those things to give him glory. But when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking specifically 2 Timothy 3.16 that God breathed this word. That, that what was written was the, the very words of God Himself. And then we talked about illumination. Revelation has happened, at least as far as God's Word is concerned. He has spoken. And inspiration has happened because it's been recorded. And now illumination continues to go on, where God's Spirit, when we come and read this Word, His Spirit opens our eyes, shines the light, reveals to us progressively, more and more about ourselves and about him and about his truth and, and we talked last week we ended with how the experience of all that is so rich as the psalmist writes psalm 119 that lord your words are sweeter than the taste of honey to my mouth and we, we talked a little bit about what that means and how we even experience that at times coming to god's word and we just think man god speaks to my soul in a way that does not happen any other time or place this this is true eternal this is the word of god and uh And it is still living and active. But it leaves us with a question as we left off there last week. What if God spoke, but there was no one around to hear it? Or what if God spoke and the word was heard and it was even written down, but now that which was written has long since been lost. And those who heard it have long since passed away. What if God spoke, but we had no access to what it was that He had spoken to mankind? Because if it's revelation, we cannot know it by our own efforts. He must deliver it to us. We're going to talk this morning about a natural follow-up to revelation and inspiration that we talked about last week. And I think... It's a topic that I I believe for for many, for most Christians, at some point in their life, in their walk with God, they come across this question where they they say, you know, I believe in you, Lord God. I've embraced Christ. You have changed my life. You've done things in me that I, I do not doubt. It's incontrovertible proof that you are God and you are real. And I read this word and I know it is your word, but I never in that process paused to think, well, that was written a long time ago. And how did it get from there to here? And how do I know that when I pick this up and read it, that it really gives me access to what happened way back there? Because Scripture says that all that we need for life and godliness is contained herein. Don't you think it's pretty important for us to know that the herein is still herein in this word, not just what God said a couple thousand years ago and further back from that? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that, that not the least stroke of the law would fade away, would pass away until it was totally fulfilled. Not, not the tiny little dotting of an I or a comma or, or any little stroke of the pen in God's law. He's referring specifically to the first part of the Old Testament, that that would never pass away until it was totally fulfilled because it was eternal. And then Jesus later in, in the same book, in Matthew 24, he says heaven and earth will pass away my words will never pass away. We have two issues that really we need to address this morning in, in order to tackle this. And, and I want you to know that this morning I'm, I'm iceberg skipping, okay? So I'm just going to touch on the tip of the iceberg of two or three subjects that, that themselves are um, very deep. But I hope in the process we can quickly connect the dots. And I want for you, if this is new to come away with a sense, I don't need to be afraid to ask these hard questions. I don't just have to say, well, I believe and I want to close my eyes and I'm not sure, but it probably all works out in the end. But to say, you know, God has given us knowledge about how we have the Word of God today in a way that gives great confidence. We still believe this is the Word of God by faith. At At the end of the day, though, there's great encouragement in knowing how it's come to us. And maybe it's not for you personally, maybe... This morning is an opportunity to bolster you in confidence in in speaking to somebody else you might know who's brought up some things like, well, you you read the Bible and you believe it and that's great, but, you know, it's just people who told stories for generations and eventually it got passed down and it's been copied a bunch of times and it's been changed. It's those kinds of issues that we're just going to iceberg skip this morning, but I think we'll give you more than enough to come away with some renewed confidence. Here are the two issues we need to address today. The first, about, about how what we have, about pardon me, about how what God spoke is what we have access to. The first issue is, is which books. Which books did God speak? Which book or books did God speak? If Scripture says, He God-breathed it. Okay, which ones did He God-breathe into? Because He didn't God-breathe into all of them. And the second is, which words did He use? Once we've decided which book or books then the question is, well, do we still have the very words or have those been changed in the books that we contain? Let's take a look first at which books did God speak and do we still have them? Here I'm addressing the issue of how did we come about to call this the Word of God? Because God spoke a word, He revealed, He breathed it. That is, by faith, not in debate for us. But it's still open to our our understanding and our questioning, well, but, but do I have it? And is there anything that I can know about that, Lord? The early church, when they sat down to discern what belonged in Scripture and what was out, what, what would form the canon, the, the, the word is the canon of Scripture, it's the standard or it's the, the unit. When they decided what would form the canon, this is really what they sought to do, is they, they sought to recognize what God had already authorized. They sought to recognize what God had already authorized. That's very important. They weren't trying to to elevate some human writings to a divine status. Or put another way, you could say it like this. The Bible is not an authoritative collection of special writings. It's a special collection of authoritative writings. And here's the difference. When God spoke... Those things that were inspired and that were written down, those had authority because God said them. Humans came along afterwards and imperfectly, but with God's direction, tried to ask, can we recognize what is already authorized, what God has already spoken? So they, they attempted to create a special collection of already authorized writings. They did not come and say, Let's take some special writings, and we will authorize them to be the Word of God. Do you understand the difference? The one presupposes, God knows the answer, I just need to figure it out. The other is, I get to figure out the answer, and when I'm done, I'm going to say, thus said the Lord. This is an important distinction, in fact, even between Protestant and, and, and Catholic today. The Catholic Bible obviously contains a handful of other books that are not in our canon of Scripture um, the reason for that is I'm going to explain to you how the church tried to recognize what was Scripture. And by and large, the early church, by and large, rejected those other books which now find themselves in the canon of Catholic Bible. Those, those handful which were called the Apocrypha and a few other scriptures, a few other writings. There, there are about um, half dozen to a dozen that were sort of close but didn't make it in. But by and large, the early church said, well, when we just use these litmus tests, these are just not God-breathed. And In fact, it wasn't until the 1500s that it was decided that those books should be um, publicly affirmed. So that's what we're going to wrestle with today. Um, how did they determine then what was God-breathed, what was in and out? They use one primary criteria, and it is this. So we're asking which books... Which books are are God-breathed? Thanks, Gillette. And go ahead. And their criteria is essentially this. It's apostolicity. There had to be some connection to the apostles. Why? Apostolicity falls under the the understanding that God has authority. And so, obviously, if, if we're looking for God's Word, we're looking for where God spoke. So, God spoke His Word. Jesus, who was God, spoke His Word. And then Jesus, by the Father's doing, commissioned apostles, and, and through them he said, I'm, I'm going to speak and I'm going to use you. And so wherever we have a direct connection to, um, to, to Jesus himself or to the apostles, then we have what's called apostolicity. The, the canon of Scripture was not settled or formalized until the 300s. Now that may cause you some frustration to know that. It might be a stumbling block to say, wow, 300 years after Jesus lived and died and rose, that, that shouldn't cause you great concern, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. In the intervening years, particularly in earnest in the 200s, the church began to really ask the question, what is Scripture and what is not? And they went back here. And they say, if it came from the apostles, then it was what God commissioned to give. They, they answered the question of apostolicity by looking at three other criteria, which are these. The first is universality. They went back and they said, was this writing universally received by the early church? Was it universally received when it was immediately written? So it had to be a widespread acceptance and it had to be a continual acceptance. So it couldn't be something that, you know, people got this and they thought, wow, this is from God, and they started reading it in the churches and two generations later they looked back and they said, well, that was really cool back then, but, um, you know, the Gulf War is over now, so... It's not as big of a deal anymore. Or whatever was the issue of their day? Did it stand the test of time and has it always been received in that way? Was it used in church worship as authoritative? These were the questions that they asked. Well, what happened in the first century church is when they would gather, they would read the the writings and the scrolls, the Old Testament. But then some writings were also placed alongside of those and read with them. Those are the letters that Paul wrote. And, and the things that Peter wrote, and the Gospels. And so if they were used as, in that way as authoritative in worship, then the later church looked back and they said, hey, these guys who were there, they thought this was Scripture. That was one of their tests. And they, they placed the readings on par with the Old Testament. If you're there in Colossians, go to chapter 4, verse 16. I want you to see this. It's, it's right here in our Bible that this custom was occurring. Colossians 4, 16. Paul writes this, He says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Paul, when he wrote these letters, he expected that it would be received as though it were given from God. And he said, read this when you gather. And oh, by the way, pass it on to the other believers in your area. Oh yeah, and there's another letter I wrote. If you guys can, get your hands on a copy of that because that's for you too. This wasn't just a letter written to one person or a group of people in one place, but it was universal. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, but Timothy rightly understood, this letter is not just for me, this is for all of God's people. Go to your right, just a couple pages, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look at verse 27, just as Paul closes that letter, he says the same thing again. He says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Paul expected that this is how it would be received, as though it was the very words of God. In fact, Paul will say elsewhere in Corinthians, he will write, You you received from me words, not as though they were the words of men, but as though they were the words of God. And he commends them for that, because God had spoken through him. Second is veracity. Veracity just means truth. In order to pass the test of veracity, a writing had to be consistent with what the Old Testament taught. The the writings that made it into the canon couldn't contradict the Old Testament. They also couldn't contradict one another. So as the church worked through this, they said it's got to be uh, mutually uh, testifying to to the other writings because they need to all fit together as best as they could understand. Veracity also has a self-authenticating quality. There's a sense when you read it that it rings true. And, And this is to acknowledge it's a subjective thing. But it's still a very important piece that the early church looked at because they believe God's Spirit is working. And we know that, that God's Spirit bears witness with what is true and teaches us and leads us. I don't know if you've ever had opportunity to read another uh, another holy book or another holy writing, or if you've had opportunity to read portions of the Apocrypha. I've read just, just little bits. Uh, I've read little bits from other writings. I can tell you, my personal subjective opinion the stuff i read i go that's wise that's that's good morals that's ethical but it so doesn't just ring true with my soul there's an eternal quality that is totally missing from everything else that's not the word of god that's that's my experience and i'm i'm sure it is the same for you as well think of how often the new testament quotes the old testament and, and further brings forth God's revelation. Now, veracity is important because some will argue the canon didn't happen until the 300s, and so here's what happened. Uh, this Jesus event happened, whatever that was, and then afterwards his followers decided, man, this is incredible, and they were like really changed and excited about it, so they began to write letters, and they would meet, and they would do their religious stuff, and this went on for about 300 years. But over the course of that time, other people came along and said, well, yeah, but when Jesus said this, he meant that. And they said, I'm not sure if that's right. And other people said, no, when Jesus said this, he meant that. And they said, well, I really think that's not right. And so finally they decided, hey, we better figure out what Jesus really meant. And we better figure out which of these books, you know, we're going to wrap our arms around. So goes the argument. It's, it's an evolution of religion argument saying that Christianity evolved and that the Bible evolved and it took 300 years and now we've got it, speaking of the New Testament. But what you need to know is that those controversies and those divisions and those questions over what Jesus meant were happening right there in the very years and weeks and days that Jesus spoke them. Go to 1 John. 1 John. Right after... A um, couple letters of Peter to your right. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. And John there writes and says this. He says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So right here in Scripture, we have an example of the fact that there were others. There was heresy. There were lies. There were false teachers who were coming in. And so the apostles themselves were addressing some of the things that needed to be addressed. What about the book of Galatians where Paul writes and he says, look, if anybody comes to you and teaches you another gospel that's contrary to the gospel that I have taught you, let him be accursed. He is not from God, he's from the devil, he says in so many words. So there was already that battle going on. Look here even at the very first words of, of this letter of 1 John. 1 John 1.1. John writes, What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, he goes on and says, these things we proclaim to you. Now, why does John start his letter that way? Well, because John's trying to communicate, I was an eyewitness. I mean, I saw Jesus. I saw him die. I saw him buried. I saw him live. I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I just didn't hear that story. I was there when he unveiled all his glory. He's saying, look, I saw it. Okay, good, we get that. But there's an even slightly more unusual thing here. He doesn't just say we we heard it and we saw it and we were there, but he says what we've looked at and we've touched with our hands. Why does he say we've touched it? Because one of the heresies in the first century was um, the heresy of docetism. And docetism uh, came from the Greek word doceo, and it means to seem and the idea was Jesus just seemed to be human, but he wasn't really. As the argument goes, the docetists believed Jesus was really from God. That's not their concern. They believed that God came down to earth. But because they believed that God is holy and matter is sinful, God is spirit and, and flesh and, and, and material things are earthly, God could never become a man. And so whatever this Jesus was, he was certainly not a real live flesh and bone human being. He couldn't be in their understanding. So he just seemed human. So John writes and he says, "Uh, I touched the guy. I wrestled with the guy. I saw him eat fish. I saw him excuse himself to use the restroom. He sneezed on me. I mean, I I don't mean to be crass for the point of dishonoring our Lord but for the very point by which John says, look, I handled him. Veracity. There is a mark of truth. And that's that's evidenced even in the writings themselves that have to do battle with the lies, even of their own days. That was the, the second mark of apostolicity. And then third is antiquity. Antiquity means it came from the first century It came from the time when the apostles were still living. Um, Apostolicity itself doesn't always mean that an apostle wrote it. Um, Luke was not one of the twelve. And yet he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody. Luke and Acts take up more volume than than anybody else's writings in the New Testament. But Luke wasn't one of the twelve. Where did Luke get his information? Answer, primarily from Paul. Because we know in Acts he traveled with Paul. And so Luke's writings had the stamp of apostolicity because he wrote really under Paul's authority. And so it's true with every one of the writers of Scripture, either they were with Jesus and Jesus told them specifically that they were commissioned, or else they wrote under the authority of one who was commissioned. And so during the time while that group was still alive, you have writings that are still, they make the mark of antiquity for the New Testament. They're verified by eyewitnesses. What do you do in the first century if some teacher comes along and he tells you, hey, Jesus said this and this is what he means? Where do you go in the first century? You you, you can't go back to your Bible. You just don't have one yet. You can maybe go back to the Old Testament, but maybe his interpretation is sort of right and you're not sure. Well, if it's in the first century, you go back to the apostles and you said, "Um, hey, hey, this guy was saying this and um, what do you think? John? And John says, well, I, I was there and um, I can tell you that's right or I can tell you that's wrong. So, so the writings, if they were going to make it into the canon of Scripture, they had to have been produced during that time that, that the apostles were still around who were able to give evidence to say yea or nay to the things that were written because they themselves had been there. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just from your, go to your left a few books Past Hebrews, and a little before it, I can find it, I know I can, there it is, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, look at Paul writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, he says, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition's. Uh, Much opposition. What what phrase did he say twice in those two verses? You know. He said, you know this about me, and I'm telling you, and you know this about me, saying you guys know me. He's going to go on later in chapter 2, and he's going to say, I was with you as a, as a, a gentle father and as a nursing mother. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, I did not share with you merely the gospel. I shared with you my own life. So the people to whom he is writing these letters are people who know him intimately. And so that antiquity, because it's during the time of the, the age of the apostles, is a further confirmation that it belongs in the canon. One other thing that antiquity also does is it, it, uh, it helps ensure that the writings themselves were not written under a pseudonym. That doesn't seem like anything for us that we would think, yeah, you know, if somebody wrote something and then they pretended it was from somebody else, that's a big fat lie. That'd be like a ding, ding, ding. That doesn't go in the Bible. But in... in um, in the ancient times, that, that was not uncommon. If you, if you were a student of a rabbi or even a Greek student of Aristotle and you had grown up in that school, it would not be unusual for the leaders of that school to write documents in the name of Aristotle. And it was viewed as being Aristotle's. Everybody knew that it wasn't him that wrote it because he'd been gone you know, a few centuries. But that was an accepted thing to do. And it was not looked on as being you know, morally bad to write you know, ethical things in the name of Aristotle even though he was gone. But the authors of Scripture wouldn't do that. And so they said, no, we need to know the, the person that wrote, and we need to know that there's a clear connection back to apostolicity. So that antiquity is another one. Now, it's a little disconcerting that the canon might be, that the canon was not settled until the 300s. But here's the thing. The writings that ended up being in the canon are the same writings that the church had been using and the same writings that were initially received from the day that they were given to God's people. Many of the early church fathers in their writings quoted from these scriptures. It, it would be like a, a pastor today uh, writing a blog and he's saying, hey, you need to do this because you know Galatians 3 says blah, blah, blah. The, the early church fathers in their writings they would quote, and, and you know what you find? They tend to quote the same 27 books, and they tend to not quote all the other books that were going on during that time. Do you know we have a fragment of the writings that have come to us from the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, some of the others. And, and, and we, we only have a fragment, right, because most of those writings are long since dust. Do you know that by the 200s A.D., just from the writings that we still have today, we can reproduce over 30,000 quotations of the New Testament? Someone has said if every Bible today were to disappear off the face of the earth, we could reconstruct over 95% of the New Testament just from the writings of the early church fathers because they, just, they quoted it so much. So although it wasn't until the 300s that the universal church stamped it and said, this is it, and we draw the boundary right here. The way they figured that out is they said, well, what has God already authorized? And they were over the course of the centuries just looking back and seeing, well, we can just see that in what God has done, what the church has received, and how the Lord has used it. So that's how we know which books. Skip off that iceberg. Let's talk about which words. Let's say you got the books right now, and you know this is Romans, Paul wrote it, and this is God's Word. But how do I know that what I have between these covers is anything like what God told Paul to write to the Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago? How do I know that the words I have here are still the same words? We do not have a single original scroll of any of the writings of the New Testament, not even a scrap of any of the original written in the first century or before writings. But remember this, that the writings themselves were received immediately as being from God. And they were cared for and they were guarded and they were copied and they were distributed. And so you know what we actually have today? Today we do not have a single scroll, not even a single scrap, that we could go back and look and say, that is what Peter wrote And you know what? I'm glad. Because you know exactly what would happen if we had even a scrap. We'd put it in a temple and we'd worship it. We'd all go and we'd bow down to it. Because we make idols out of everything, don't we? That's exactly what we would do. God has not left us a single original manuscript. Instead, He's left us thousands of very, very, very close copies we can, we can simply compare other known ancient writings and their, their manuscript evidence to the evidence that the Bible has to figure out if it's, you know, pretty solid. If we're pretty confident that we could work our way back to the original words that were written in Scripture. Take a look up here. Many of you have seen a chart like this. This is only a small piece of it. If you want to know what Sophocles really really wrote, you can have... Uh, you know, a copy of it in your hand today. He lived in the 5th century B.C. His, the, the earliest manuscript, the earliest copy that we have from Sophocles dates from about the 900's A.D. So it's about 1400 years after the event and we have about 100 copies of Sophocles. Plato, we have about 1200 years from the time he died to the time of the first manuscript. And we have a grand total of seven copies of what Plato wrote. Aristotle, Caesar, you work your way down and you find out one really sticks out in that table, doesn't it? The very earliest copy we have of any of the New Testament writings is, um, is a papyrus. It's not much bigger uh, than a hand. And it's a, I believe it's a copy of the Gospel of John. It's, it's, it's just a portion. It dates from about 125. It dates from about 30 or 35 years from the time of the writing. That's, that's one of the earliest ones. I, I think there are probably plenty of people tempted to just go worship that thing as it is. But we actually have thousands of copies from the first and the second centuries and then down through the centuries after that. And though we do not have a single case where we can look and say, hey, this is God's Word and that's exactly what we said, we do not have a single one that we know this is the very thing that God breathed. Instead, we have thousands of manuscripts that all agree with each other about 99 point something percent of the time. So that we can look at him and we can go, oh, well, that one's wrong. Well, that's obvious because he dropped this word right here. This word ends in a D and then down here that words end in a D and he he skipped all the words in between. And I know because I have 4,000 other copies that have the words in between. And we can do that over and over and over again. So that we can, that's just the science of text criticism. And it doesn't take any faith. It's the same science that's done with every ancient document. And the certainty of the text criticism information that we have for the New Testament blows away every other ancient document that we know. The Lord Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass. Pass away. And God was so smart to give it to us in 5,099% perfect copies instead of one that was 100%, wasn't he? I think so. Guys, the English Bible, there's still one step left that I'm not going to talk about today except for these two sentences. There's still one step. You got to get from Greek and Hebrew to English, right? From those manuscripts to what you hold. Your English English Bibles are so incredibly good as translations. 99 point whatever percent of the time, you have a more than faithful and even nuanced interpretation of what's in there. It's just too many scholars working too long. It's just been too open for everybody's eyes to see. And God's Spirit leading even the translators. So that now even the differences in translation we can explain because There's never a one-to-one from one language to another. You have to decide, well, am I going to capture a thought or am I going to capture the individual words, which sometimes end up giving a slightly different thought. There's different ways to do translations. But guys, our English Bibles are fabulous. I don't say that as like a know-it-all scholar because I don't know Greek and Hebrew that well. I just know from the little I've studied in it, you just go, yeah, that's what the Greek word says. And um, that's what we have in the English. That's amazing that somebody figured that out time and time and time again. So let's go back to where we left off last week in talking about inspiration. What do we mean when we say inspiration in the technical sense? The words that we have put to define it so that it's it's really clear for us and anybody else is we call it verbal plenary inspiration. And what that means, verbal, just means the words themselves. It means when God inspired his word, he didn't just give Peter a thought and then Peter, it's like, oh, I've got this thought. How should I express it? And he started to write. But then Peter's, you know, stick his foot in his mouth personality started to go down one tangent. And then God's spirit had to like wrangle him back and they arm wrestled over it. And at the end, you got God's thought, but really it's in a bunch of other words. Now, verbal inspiration is the belief that God inspired the very words that Peter used. And plenary, you guys know what it's like. You go to a conference and you got a bunch of speakers but you got one guy that talks to everybody, and what's he called? He's called the plenary speaker, right? It just means full. Plenary inspiration just means God didn't only partially inspire it, but Peter was pretty smart, and so they sort of met in the middle. It means that God fully revealed not only to Peter, but even through Peter. There are cases where the authors of Scripture did not fully understand the very things that they wrote. In fact, First Peter says that. He said, the Old Testament prophets... We're looking into the prophecies they made to fully understand them. Down to the last detail. And so here's how we could say it another way. Here's, here's our contention, and I, I'm including you in our, and, unless you have a different understanding of inspiration. I don't know. By inspiration, we believe that it's not merely the message of Scripture that's inspired, but so are the very words. In fact, God breathed 2 Timothy 3.16, means that even the grammar and the style and the flow and the nuance of every sentence and every word are exactly what God superintended. God chose Peter with his personality to write exactly what he wanted so that the end result were the very words that God breathed. And they were chosen by him perfectly and wonderfully to communicate his truth to us. That's what we believe about this book. Now, let's just do this as we close up. I'm going to take a a couple minutes, and we're just going to look at two quick examples of of where this matters. It matters everywhere in Scripture, but in some places it matters more than others. And so hopefully this will be fun. Are you up for like 10 minutes of Greek lesson? I hope so. All right. Let's take a look at an illustration regarding the deity of Christ. The first is Titus 2.13, and if you want, you can turn there in your Bibles. Titus 2.13. And I'm sorry, when I transferred over to this PowerPoint, um, my Greek font. Lost So, the first line was supposed to be in Greek, but that's why it looks really goofy. And then I tried to transliterate it, and then I worked down to a literal word-for-word, and then on from there. So, it's Tu Kaisoteros Hemon Jesu Christu, the great God and Savior, our Jesus Christ, which your Bible probably says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible that you have a slightly different translation or that your Bible has a note and in the margin has a different translation. And the other translation is this, our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the difference between that one and the other one? In the other one, how many people are in view? Just one guy. And he is known as our great God and Savior, namely Jesus Christ. The second one is our great God, Oh, yeah, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Two people are in view, right? It's possible in the Greek that, that both, uh, uh, both meanings have, have room to be taken from there. The, the, the word our only appears once. That's Hemon, but it's distributed because of the chi, because of the and, and it applies to both. But is it our God and, oh, yeah, our Savior, or is it our God and Savior? Well, There's a guy by the name of Granville Sharp, and he was a very sharp guy, uh, no kidding. And he was, a, he was a, a Greek scholar, and back in his day, before there were cool computers, he went back and he looked at every single occurrence of this particular Greek construction, and it had to meet certain rules to fall within this criteria. And what he found is every single time that the Greek construction met the proper criteria, these two People that were mentioned always refer to one person, only, the sa- only one person, the same person. Several examples here you can take a look at. This is the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James. So do we have the son of Mary over here and the brother of James? No, he's the same guy, namely the carpenter, who we happen to know of as Jesus. The one who comes down from heaven and who gives life. There's a bunch of other adjectives in there, but two descriptions of the same person according to the will of our God and Father, same person. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant, in the sight of our God and Father. Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. This one actually has three coordinating descriptions, but all three, the whole construction falls within the same rules of grammar and the three still refer to the same one person. The last is probably my favorite because it's got about five or six you are the wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked one. Six or however many it is, but they all refer to the same person because they fall under the same rule of grammar, known today, actually, as the Granville Sharp rule or the Granville Sharp construction. Uh, by the way, it falls apart. If you have a personal name with the and, it doesn't work. Um, this is Roger and his boss. Those are two people, right? Right? But if we say, um, that's his boss and his coach, Roger, one guy, right? The point is, not only throughout the Greek of the New Testament, but throughout Koine Greek, which that was the the language of Greek at that time that the, the New Testament was written in. Every single construction that follows these particular rules, the two sides always refer to one. And so the point is, there's really no wiggle room. But to say, Timothy, who didn't have to sit down and figure out his grammar, who didn't have to know who Granville Sharp was, but who just lived in the culture and knew how his language worked, knew exactly what he was doing when he said, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's one of the strongest um, evidences for the deity of Christ in the New Testament. Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible but megalu theu soteros hemon yesu christu is and it means the same kind of thing one other that you're probably more familiar with and that's John 1:1 1, 1. John 1:1 1. kai 1. halagos in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God. Actually, the literal in the Greek says that the Word was towards God, which is a beautiful nuance. Because it wasn't just that the Father and the Son were together, but they were towards one another. There's a hint of a relationship there that I think is just too tantalizing to miss. And the Word was with God, and the Word was something. That's the question. theos ein halagos. So we take a look at that last little construction. And here's what we find when we do our grammar. In the final phrase, the word is the subject and the word was something. The word is the subject of was. The word theos is the predicate nominative. In other words, it predicates something or tells something about the word. The word was theos. There are three ways to to translate theos that are at least possible in Greek in general. There's no article in front of theos. Theos means God. So it could be that it's indefinite. It'd be like the difference between saying dog and the dog. The dog is definite. Dog is just indefinite. This is just theos with no article. So maybe it should be translated, and the word was a God. Except that this is an extremely rare occurrence in this construction. There's a debate here whether there are any examples of this construction being an indefinite in the entire New Testament in the Greek. There there are some people will say well there's one or two but they're debatable. Most will say there are none. It's less than 1% in all of Koine Greek that this construction gives you an indefinite. This by the way is the translation chosen by the New World Translation of the Bible, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the word was a God, little g, this is exactly how they take it, and they say it's right there in the Greek. Second option is that the word was God, capital G, and it's definite. When you have this construction, about 6 or 8% of the time, the, the, uh, the predicate nominative is a definite, but it's probably not the best option here because here's the reason why. Speaking from what we understand of our theology and the trinity, this would be to say that the son was the father. And Jesus was not the father. So though our bibles translate it and the word was god, that is a fine translation, but here's the grammar that's really behind it is its actually third option qualitative. Far and away the most common use of this construction is to make the predicate nominative a qualitative. So the idea is not that he was just a God or that he was God the Father, but that he was God in the fullest sense. He was God in essence. He was God in quality. He was God in everything that God is. 80% of the Koine Greek uses of this predicate nominative is qualitative. 94% in the New Testament, it's qualitative. Beyond that, we're reading the Gospel of John. You think John thinks that Jesus is God? When he quotes in John 8, 28, before Abraham was, I am, and dozens of other places. If you ever think that maybe somebody thinks that Jesus is God, it's John in his Gospel, right? Right? In summary, what John is doing is he's stating in the most concise way possible that the Word shared the essence of the Father, though they differed in person. You know the best short summary for John 1.1, short translation? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was towards God, and everything that God was, the Word was. That's what John 1.1 says. John uses his grammar really well because he knows his theology really well. And he knows exactly what he's trying to communicate to us about the Word. So, to say it again, this is our contention about inspiration. Not not merely that, yeah, God's message is in there, and if you read it, you'll find it. But that every word and every note of grammar and every nuance and every choice of vocabulary was superintended by God to perfectly and wonderfully communicate His truth to us. This is not what we usually do on Sunday mornings. Usually we just come here and we dive in and we assume all of this. But once in a while, it's good to pause and go back and look at the foundation and see. We don't just dive in because when I read this, it makes me feel this. Because there's a lot of other people reading cereal boxes and, and other religious writings and the funny pages who are having a lot of experiences too. We can say, well, that's great, but I read a historical document and you can study it for yourself. This is why I believe what I believe. God was so good. And it is so amazing, not only that His Word has this incredible effect on us. That's where we ended last week. But also it has such a solid ground for us to stand on about where it came from. I hope that... uh, this morning, if this itched where you're scratching, um, let me know or talk to somebody or just go do some more of your research. There's, there's icebergs under the surface about this, and we've really just skipped across the top. My encouragement, though, is that I don't want you to leave today with a sense of, of worshiping this book because God was smart enough not to give us a, a papyrus somewhere to stick in a temple, but to see that God was that good so that we could have access to all the truth that he's given and leave us only him to worship for it. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you that your word is a, it's a historical document and that it stands up to severe scrutiny. Uh, Father, more reliable than any ancient manuscript. And yet, Father, enough of a gap is left that we still have to believe, don't we, Lord? And we do. Father, we believe for all of these reasons and also because our heart can't help it. You have opened our eyes and we cannot believe otherwise. We thank you that you're our God. We praise you that you have given us access to the truth about things. And Father, we just ask Him um, help us this week uh, to worship you and to make this truth... Uh, more real in our world, that we would carry it with boldness wherever we go. We ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.